0: Sweet, sweet time of worship this morning. Thank you guys for your preparation as you prepare to lead. It makes a difference, and uh, man, it's sweet. It's sweet that we can come together and have uh, perfect unity in Christ and be able to worship in such a manner. To know any of the truths that we sang about this morning is a huge privilege, and I hope that we would all see it as so. This morning we'll be talking about how, as we sang about the cross, we'll be talking about how um, the cross changes each of us to where we are no longer about ourselves, but we're first about Christ and then about others. And so this morning is part two of a message that started last week on different beliefs within the same faith. Uh, If you haven't listened to that message, this message is really, um, really a part two of that message And so I encourage you, we put all of our uh, sermons and such online, and uh, you can access those at crosspointfellowship.us and make use of those. Uh, Sometimes I'm in here and I hear the sermon, and I need to go and listen to it a few more times throughout the course of the week, Um, and just take in what it is that the Lord uh, wanted me to know uh, from that sermon. So I encourage you to do that, but this week is part two. Last week we looked at why we would welcome someone who has a different belief over a disputable matter than myself or than ourselves. And this week we're looking at how we do that specifically. Uh, But before we jump in I'd like to pray. There's a bunch going on this week, a bunch of different things happening and uh, I want to pray and ask the Lord's uh, blessing and and guidance on our time. So y'all pray with me. Lord, we thank you uh, for Christ. It's because of Christ that we can all gather here today and have unity and and open up the word and actually know what it means. By the work of your spirit, you give us insight and wisdom and discernment. Lord, I want to pray for, uh, again, just for all of the churches here in, in uh, in Hunt County, the surrounding areas. I pray that we would rightly represent the oneness that exists in Christ. Lord, I pray against the history that we have of not being able to resolve conflict. Lord, I pray that you would keep us from quarreling over so many different things. Lord, I pray that that would never lead to overlooking sin. But where one has broken our law and not God's law, I pray that we would have great patience. And I pray that we would be able to embrace how some are in different journeys, some are in different places in their journey of faith. And I pray that that would cause us to just love each other wholeheartedly and rightly. I pray that you would give us insight as to how we do that this morning. Lord, we, uh, I want to lift up uh, Rhonda's father, Herb. and uh, They've had a hard week with, with his health conditions and, and uh, they've probably got some difficult weeks ahead of them. And I pray that you would give them peace that exceeds understanding. I pray that you would uh, give the doctors wisdom uh, as they uh, continue to treat him and I pray that uh, the times uh, with the family are sweet and I pray that uh, that your will would be done and that you would be glorified and I pray for Rhonda as she's so dear to us and as she does so much here uh, for our children and our families and I pray that uh, in this season where she's where her father is uh Dealing with different health issues, I pray that you would give her rest. I pray that you would let her sleep, be sweet, and uh, that you would bless her in that way. Lord, we thank you for those who returned uh, from Ghana this week and thank you for the uh, report that it was a a, uh, a very sweet and successful and fruitful um, time there. Lord, we pray for our uh, those families. Uh, who are part of this body, some of the guys from Mercy Me and their, uh, the, the bus crash this weekend. Um, uh, while we are thankful that all of them are fine, uh, we are desperately, um, deeply mourning those who, uh, who lost um, family members in the crash. And Lord, uh, we pray that you would be peace uh, that exceeds understanding because there's no way to sit in that kind of situation and say, oh, I get this, I understand this. So we need your peace beyond that, and I pray that for for the guys who are there, for the families that are affected. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, also uh, for Ben and Christy as they're traveling back today. I pray that you would give them safe travels. Lord, as we humble ourselves before you this morning, we just acknowledge that your ways are higher than our ways. And uh, there's not much that we're going to engage in scripture this morning that comes naturally. And we need the work of the Spirit to enable us to be faithful in all things for your glory and for the good of others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up to Romans chapter 14. Uh, Last week, we stepped into the minefield known as Romans chapter 14. And before we look at a few things that we established, I just want to make this statement. You've heard it already this morning, but divisive quarreling misrepresents Jesus. Divisive quarreling over disputable matters misrepresents Jesus. And in a time where there's such confusion about who God is and how, what does Jesus have to do with God and do I really need that? What is heaven? There's so much confusion in our culture about those matters. In a time such as that, I want us to really look at this and say, let us not quarrel and misrepresent Jesus. We want to do all we can as a people to rightly put the truth of Jesus on display so that others can enjoy and follow and humbly submit and serve that Jesus. So some of the things that we established last week to help us in this, having different beliefs within the same faith, one of the first things we saw is we are unified, but we're not uniform. Not everyone in here makes the exact same decisions and dresses the same and talks the same and has the same job. We're not uniform. But we are unified because of the work of Christ. We'll talk more about that here in a minute. Some Christians are stronger and some are weaker. Some are stronger and some are weaker. That may sound unloving at first, but if you abandon that idea, you're abandoning what the Bible tells us, and in fact, that's unloving. If we don't believe that anyone's weaker, we're never looking out for them. We're never looking out to make sure that we bear with their failings and encourage them as needed and push them forward in the truth. And if we don't believe that there are those who are stronger than us, we'll never need to embrace being teachable. If there's no room for growth, what would be the purpose on moving in the direction of growth? So there are those who are stronger and those who are weaker. And last week, as we sought to answer the question on why we would welcome someone who has a different belief than us, though it falls in the same faith, we found that because God gives different measures of faith to different believers— the result is that we inevitably have different beliefs within the same faith. And we need to see that before we go any further this morning. God gives different measures of faith to different believers at different times. It says it in Romans 12. It says, Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. So we got to get that before we go any further, that there are different beliefs within the same faith as a result of the fact that God gives different measures of faith to different believers. And hopefully, each of them are increasing in their faith, moving forward in that process of sanctification, being made holy for the glory of God. Last week, we also considered the reality of our context here in Hunt County. Just the first verse in Romans 14 said, "...as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions." Other versions say not to fight over disputable matters, not to argue over things that you can have a different belief in within the same faith. We considered that the reality of our context here in Hunt County is that rather than welcoming those with different beliefs, we have a horrible tendency to quarrel over disputable matters. We retreat rather than resolve. And usually it's we fight and we retreat rather than resolving an issue. It's not hard to find fighting words, as we call them, uh, here in our context. I mean, we'll be talking about some of the differences, but last week, that's what we established. We established why we would welcome. And this week, we're gonna look at how. So I want y'all to look at Romans 14, and we're just gonna read the whole chapter out loud. Climb into this context. Consider what's actually going on here. Know it's not a fairy tale in a far, far away land long, long ago. This really happened. This was the, the state of the church in Rome, and Paul's addressing it. So Romans 14... If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to the Lord. Therefore, because of all those things we just said, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us, sitting here right now, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself. For what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. And then we end with this massive statement, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So the picture here is this. You've got not just Jew and Gentile, but those from a Jewish heritage and those from a Gentile heritage for the first time coming together under the same roof. And their aim is to worship, they've been called to worship the Lord as one not judging, not despising, not quarreling. And let's just, let's just, there's a little gap here, so we'll use that gap as an illustration. Let's say that this side are the Jewish heritage, okay? Hopefully that doesn't offend anybody. This is an example. This is the Jewish heritage. This side is the Gentile heritage. You guys are wicked. So we've got the Jewish heritage, and we've got the Gentile heritage, okay? And it may have been set up like this. They may have all been sitting on one side and the other side with some space in between them. Because of the differences. But you're under the same roof and you're worshiping the same God with an aim to honor the Lord and give thanks as you do so. And so what we have here is a picture of these guys over here are eating meat that is considered unclean by these guys over here. And so what the Jews are doing, they're looking at the Gentiles and they're saying, Ugh, Can you believe what they're doing? They're eating the meat that for my whole life, those who I trust the most have told me will make me unacceptable to God, and they're just sitting there eating and eating. And the Jews are looking at the Gentiles saying, man, that is just unacceptable. Jews, you Gentiles need to be more like the Jews. That's what the Gentiles were saying. The Jews were saying, the Jews were saying, Gentiles, you need to be more like us. Adversely, the Gentiles were over here on this side saying, why aren't they eating the meat? This is good meat. The Gentiles are looking at the Jews and saying, vegetables only. Have you lost your mind? For my whole life, me, my daddy, my granddaddy, we we have barbecues and we eat meat and the Lord loves it and it's good. And the Gentiles are looking over at the Jews and saying, you know what, Gentiles, Jews. Man, this is getting confusing. (laughs) The Gentiles are looking at the Jews and they're saying, you know what, Jews, you Jews need to be more like us Gentiles. And so they're quarreling over disputable matters, because in and of itself, the meat was not unclean. They're quarreling over disputable matters, different opinions within the same faith. And what Paul's doing, he's saying, Jew and Gentile, it's about Jesus, and you each need to be more like Jesus. He's saying, Jew and Gentile, you're not Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, you're Christians, Christ died to break down the walls of hostility that exist between brothers and sisters in Christ. So quit looking at the other side, judging and despising, and thinking they all need to be more like you. You all need to be more like Jesus. That's the point that's being made here in Romans 14. Christ died to make each of them able to stand. The Jew who was refraining from eating the meat, and the Gentile who was partaking of the meat faithfully. Christ died to make each of them able to stand. To make each of them able to observe or to not observe, to eat or to abstain, to the honor of the Lord with a thankful heart. So, as we consider how to welcome one with a different opinion over a disputable matter, our hope today is that the word would equip us for this work of ministry, that we would really be equipped to do this. What I mean is that to be equipped to handle each situation is much more fruitful than just being given a list. Everybody wants a list. I felt the tension last week. It was weird. After the sermon last week, nine out of 10 people that I talked to just said, hey, you handled that real well. I'm like, what does that mean? Does that mean that everyone was on pins and needles worrying someone's gonna get angry and start throwing stones? Like, you hand, it, it's, it's this feeling of, uh, what about this? What about this? Well, you didn't really mention this, and that's probably good that you didn't mention it, but what about this? And today, we're gonna mention some of the things. It may be uncomfortable today because I may mention something that you have a view on that differs from the person sitting next to you or on the other side of the sanctuary. Some examples that come up when we talk about Romans chapter 14. What about alcohol? Okay, big elephant in the room. Let's go ahead and address it. We're not just talking about alcohol, but partially we are talking about alcohol. And we'll talk about it this morning. But it goes beyond that to so many other things. That's not the only thing that we quarrel over. Trust me. What about dress code and appropriate attire? What about tithing and giving? Am I giving too much? Is that guy over there giving enough? What about different views of the Trinity? What about different views of baptism? What about appropriate words and inappropriate words? Why does it seem that some people think it's okay to say this at this time, but then when you're over here with these people, you don't say that? Are there words that are inappropriate? Are the words dirty? What's the difference here? What about acceptable places to hang out? and unacceptable places to hang out can there really be christian vegetarians (laughs) what about christian politics can christian republican and christian democrat dwell in the same room without ripping each other's head off and calling the other a godless hater of all godly things can we do that There's long lists, we'll address more in a minute, but each situation, each concern, when I say we need to be equipped to handle this work of ministry, I'm saying, rather than just saying, hey, here's your list, go out and just keep your list on you, and if this matter comes up, this disputable matter, just, yeah, you're a sinner. Mm, you need to be more like me. That's the point. The point is that we, it's not about getting others to just be more like us, it's about handling it in a biblical way. And I'm hoping that we're equipped for that work of ministry today. Each situation and each concern needs to be carefully assessed. According to Romans 14, there are some questions that each of us need to ask of ourselves so that we might rightly represent our Lord. You are an ambassador of the king, according to 2 Corinthians 5. And as an ambassador, you no longer speak on your behalf. You speak on behalf of the king. And so we need to sit and look at the answers we give as each situation comes up because you're not just representing you. You're representing the Lord. Proverbs 15, 28 says, The heart of the righteous person ponders how to answer. Don't just throw out what your dad or your granddad told you. Know what you believe. Now here in this, I'm not saying that we welcome sin. I, I feel like I needed to just say this again and again. It's not about overlooking sin. And it's not about being wishy-washy in your convictions. It's about holding your convictions rightly. Fully convinced as to what you believe. But not feeling it necessary to hold others to your standard, but pointing them to the Lord and urging them to be fully convinced as to what they believe. Be convicted. Hold your conviction firmly, but do not be judgmental and despising and other things. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. So first question, if you're on fire, what do you do? Stop, drop, and roll. Yeah, everyone knows that, right? Stop, drop, and roll. Bam, fire, stop, drop, and roll. I was talking to Drew Livingood this week. He, he, he gave me that example. And what I was doing is I was explaining to Drew, I was saying, you know, my wish was that when we have disputable matters, how to run a VBS, what's the youth ministry responsible for? How should our children's ministry be structured? What color do we paint the building? How do we vote on financial? Do I get a vote on all financial matters? How are they going to hire that staff guy? What is the church leadership? Is the congregation leading the church? Is there a pastor? Are there elders or there deacons? Do the deacons act like the elders? What do we do? There's a bajillion disputable matters. And when we get in those situations, I want us, rather than just immediately jumping to quarreling, I want us to rightly handle the situation because we're rightly handled by the scriptures. I want us to be able to assess these questions so that we can put on display a faith that always seeks to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And so I was talking to Drew about that and he was saying, well, when people are on fire, they know... Stop, drop, and roll. So maybe today, is, this is an attempt to ingrain. If you're in a situation where there are different beliefs over, the, over disputable matters within the same faith, that you would be able to say, am I despising? Am I judging? Am I fully convinced as to what I believe? And am I willing to abandon my Christian liberty for the good of another? Those are the four questions we're going to be looking at today. Hopefully, there'll be four questions that are familiar to us because you live in a context where there are fighting words all over the place. People can jump into a quarrel in the snap of a finger. You can be enjoying a meal together, and someone mentions, whatever, I don't want to say something specific because I don't want you to like, jump to that place, But and you can just be fighting over something, and let's leave. I-, I will not be in the presence of this wicked one. So the first question, am I despising? Look at Romans 14. It says, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. So the first question that you have to ask, it's interesting because you're looking at the belief of another and you're saying, am, can we have these beliefs in the same faith? But you need to ask questions of yourself first. And the first question you ask of yourself is, am I despising? Another way to say that is, as I do what I feel led to do, am I despising someone else simply on the grounds that they're not? As I do what it is that I feel led to do, am I looking at someone else and despising them because they're not? See, we do this for a couple reasons. One, we may do this because we feel guilty about what we're doing, which we'll address in a second. Or we may despise someone else because we want them to feel guilty about what they're not doing. You ever been guilty of that? I have. Let's say that you feel led to stay afterwards and help clean up And you find that you were the only one led to stay afterwards and help clean up. Do you look around just despising all those other believers (laughs) who weren't led to stay and help clean up? Well, let's talk about nursery duty. Do you serve in the nursery more than the average Crosspoint member? Is there a joyful heart there? Or are you looking saying, I wish the other believers would serve in the nursery? Are you despising? Or do you actually have an aim to want to help love the children and bring them up in the fear and the discipline of the Lord and encourage what's being encouraged at their home? What about giving to a particular need? You feel led to give to something. And then all of a sudden you start despising everyone else who's not giving to that same need. If you're a real believer, you're do this, I'm doing it. Do you despise simply on the grounds that someone else has chosen not to do what you feel led to do? First, if you feel guilty, verses 22 through 23, look at Romans 14, 22 through 23. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. Those verses say that if you feel guilty and you despise someone else because you feel guilty about what you're doing, you're not proceeding in faith and you're thereby sinning. I mean, the clearest example I can think of, even, even though I don't want it to be the only thing we talk about, is when you turn 21, yes, you have the right to have a drink if you like. And you're 21 years old. Woohoo! But that's not what it's all about. If you say, well, I'm, I'm going to have a drink. Is anyone else going to have a drink? And no one else has a drink. Well, I'm 21. I can do this. I'm going to do this. And then you do that, and then you're looking at everyone else saying, well, why aren't anyone else doing this? Well, are you fully convinced that what you're doing is faithful? Or are you despising them because you feel guilty about what you're doing? Or maybe it's where you're at, or maybe it's how you're talking, or maybe it's who you're hanging out with. It can be any number of things. See, in this context, in the church in Rome, for them it was meat and the observance of days. But for us, it can be what we drink, it can be where we spend our time, it can be where we spend our money. Why doesn't anybody else think this is a good investment? It can be who we are friends with, it can be what we choose to view as entertainment. It can be, if we can be around someone who who is gambling, oh gosh, if we do or do not feel that it's okay to dance. I want to give an example. Say you're going to a somewhat questionable movie with Christian friends, and you know what the movie's rated, but you're not sure why it's rated what it's rated, so you go to the movie theater, and you're going to say, okay, let's look at what's going on. Why is this rated what it's rated? I've heard it's a good movie. Uh, I have a Christian friend who I trust who saw the movie, and let's say there's 10 of you going to this movie together. And as you get there and you look at it, there's one in the group of 10 who decides that they feel it would be best for them not to go, but they're not condemning those who are choosing to go to the movie. When that person goes to their car and drives away, what do you say? What's your response? What do you do? Is it, cool, we can have different beliefs in the same faith, let's embrace that and enjoy the movie. (laughs) Right on. Or is it, who do they think they are? Oh, better than us. We don't need them to ever go to a movie with us again. We're not going to let them ruin our night. What do you say when they drive away? Do you despise them for not going to the movie that you felt it was okay to go to? See, this is not natural. It's not natural to say, okay, that's cool. That's good. It's natural to jump into who do you think you are and start despising. That's what's natural. But what's natural is oftentimes Sin. So, am I despising? The second question we got to ask is Am I judging? Now, I want to reiterate, I'm not talking about sin. Am I judging? Have they broken God's law and sinned and they need to be rebuked? Or have they just broken my standard and I'm judging them because of it? We're talking about embracing others, welcoming them. And you have to ask these personal questions of yourself. Am I despising? Am I judging? Another way to say that is, as I am abstaining or refraining from this thing that I am led to abstain or refrain from, am I judging those who have decided that they can faithfully partake of or take part in the same thing? The reason Paul gives is in verse 4, why we do not judge. Look at Romans 14, verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So Paul's reason is, don't judge because each of you are servants, and neither of you is the master of the other. Don't judge because each of you are servants of the king of kings, and neither of you is the other's master. When you judge, you set yourself above a person acting in such a way as to put that person at your disposal if you so pleased. You know, I wish that you would be like this. Not considering maybe the Lord's calling them to do something different than you. See, when we judge, it's really dangerous territory. And even in talking about being judgmental, I can sound judgmental. This is so dangerous. It's dangerous territory because you may find yourself holding someone a fellow forgiven brother in Christ, you may find yourself holding them in contempt for doing the very thing that God gives them liberty to do. You may find yourself holding a fellow brother or sister in Christ who's forgiven by the work of the cross and the empty tomb. You may find yourself holding them in contempt for doing the very thing that the Lord gives them liberty to do. And the Lord may not just be giving them liberty to do that thing. The Lord may be giving them liberty to do it in such a way that they are honoring him and being thankful in the process. Now, you can't sin in faith. Let's be clear about that. But you don't want to hold someone in contempt like that. All the while, you're sitting there glaring at them thinking, You dirty meat eater. You dirty, dirty meat eater. This, this is a. Uh, we'll just connect it back to the Jews and the Gentiles. We don't, we don't need a present day example. Let's look at the example set first in Scripture. Connect it back to the Jew and the Gentile. The Jew is looking at the Gentile and saying, You dirty meat eater. What are you doing? That's not appropriate. You need to be more like me. And what Paul comes in and says, Jewish guys, I need you to be real careful about that because you're looking at this Gentile over here and you're saying to them, that's unacceptable. But what you really mean is it's unacceptable to you because what Paul is telling to the Jewish heritage, he's saying, this over here, these Gentiles, what they're doing is not a sin for them. What they're doing... They're doing faithfully, they're doing to honor the Lord, and they're thankful in the process. That's what Paul's saying. Judgment is often filled with pride. C.J. Mahaney, he wrote a book called Humility. It's a great book um, and a hard read because it's humbling as well. Um, but he states: pride is when sinful, pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on him. Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence on him. When your aim is simply to get others to do as you do or not do, then rather than helping them to keep their eyes fixed on Christ, you are adversely urging them to fix their eyes on you and your ways. See, when you want to aspire to the position of God, and that's what you're doing when you're being judgmental, now hold each other accountable. Hold each other accountable. If there's darkness in someone's life, you drag it into the light. Confess the sin. Repent. But if you're being judgmental, that's different. You're standing in a position where you're playing, wanting to play God for that person. And rather than urging them to fix their eyes on Christ, you're saying, fix your eyes on me and my ways, and you do as I do. In an attempt to keep everyone else from sinning, do not foolishly lead yourself to the sin of pride in your judgment. Acknowledge your dependence upon God and urge others to be dependent upon God. Now, am I despising? Am I judging? The third question that we must ask of ourselves. We ask these questions of ourselves because it is an account to God that we will give of ourselves. Not everyone else. So, am I despising? Am I judging? And the third question is, am I fully convinced as to what I believe? In verse 5 through 6 in Romans 14, it says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Those are two very different beliefs. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. This is important. Am I fully convinced as to what I believe? As you abstain, as you partake, as you go, as you stay, whatever you do, do I have a biblical reason for standing where I stand? See, at some point we have to graduate and move on from that's how my daddy told me, or that's what my granddaddy did. For my first year working here, uh, the the administrative person who was here at the time, I would ask, why do we do it that way? And she would say, it's because it's the way we've always done it. Simple, right? Why change things? And here's what we got to reason with. Your dad may have been wrong. Your granddad may have been foolish in his thinking at some point. So you need to go to the Word and stand here. Am I fully convinced as to what I believe? If we're not fully convinced as to what I believe, we will inevitably be led to judge and to despise because you'll just do whatever everyone else is doing in the circumstance you find yourself in. This happens a lot with students who go to college who are not fully convinced as to what they believe, who are wishy washing their convictions. They'll go off to college and they'll just say, I'm not fully convinced. What do you believe? Oh, you believe that's okay? Okay, it's okay for me today too. And then you're with someone else the next day and y'all don't think that? I don't think it's okay either. And you're not fully convinced as to what you believe. And you know what that leads to? You do things and you live in a way and then you look back at maybe your family or your, those people you grew up with in your church and you, you despise them. And you judge them saying, who, who are you to judge me? You think you're better than me just because I do this? All the while, you're not even fully convinced as to what you believe. You're just doing what everyone else is doing. Hold your convictions firmly. Be fully convinced in your own mind. Romans 12 says, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may know that which is good and acceptable to the Lord. You must let your mind engage this truth so that you can live in a right manner. So here's where we have to talk about the importance of doctrine the importance of doctrine. You do what you do because you believe what you believe, you say what you say because you believe what you believe. You refrain from doing what you seem it's nice to re- necessary to refrain from doing because you believe what you believe. Doctrine is very important. Knowing these truths, knowing the heritage, knowing the differences between people, knowing the purpose that God has to redeem people for his glory, doctrine is important. I've heard many people say, I don't want to argue over doctrine. Good. Don't argue over it. But don't by any means dismiss it, or abandon it. You do what you do because you believe what you believe, and doctrine is important. Romans 14 says that anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. So whether you're partaking, whether you're abstaining, you must do so faithfully. And when the moments come that you're not certain as to where you stand, you go to the Word and you stand there. And you stand there as long as it takes. If, you're, if you turn the page and you're still not sure, keep reading. Keep reading. Because your aim is to honor the Lord, not just to make a decision and do what you want to do. Use your Christian liberty to just do whatever. Go to the Word and stand there. If you're not fully convinced, you're not honoring the Lord. If you're moving something, moving forward to something that you're not fully convinced as to what you believe, you're not honoring the Lord. It's difficult to give thanks to God if you're not certain that what you're doing or not doing is a sin. If you turn 21, you think, oh, man, I can drink. Oh, yeah, here we go, I'm drinking. But you're not sure if you're sinning or not because you're not proceeding faithfully in what you're doing. You could be saying, God, I want to give thanks to you, but maybe I'm sinning. You can't sin in faith, it does not work. This takes time. This takes weighing out different scenarios and different possibilities and different factors. This is not efficient. We'll find ourselves making less use of what we have the right to do because we want to make sure we're doing that faithfully. It takes time. Romans 14, verse 14 explains that something clean, and this is confusing, so listen closely. It's confusing to me. Romans 14, verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Does that make clear sense to everybody else? What they're explaining is that something clean can become something unclean for the one who cannot proceed in that thing in faith. The movie you're at, the people you're hanging out with, the place you are, the way you're spending your money, the counsel that you're giving. So, the thing in itself is clean. When the Jew was upset with the Gentile, the Gentile was not eating dirty meat. For we know that in the Lord, indeed, it was clean. So, the thing in itself is clean. But if you're not fully convinced of that, then that thing for you is unclean. That's not easy. We're not talking about truth that just is kind of, oh, this is true for you, but not for me. Oh, that's okay for you, but it's not okay. Oh, that's a sin for you, but that's not a sin for me. Sin is sin. You've got, you got to be fully convinced as to what you believe. But there are some things, if in and of themselves, they are clean, if indeed they're in the Lord. You've got to weigh and say, can I proceed in this thing in faith? Because if not, for you, that thing is unclean. So, Am I despising, am I judging, and am I fully convinced as to what I believe? If we answer these questions, it aids us into making sure that we are not being judgmental and despising someone else and judging someone else and quarreling over disputable matters. Now, the fourth question is the hardest. I think that's what you're supposed to do in preaching. You save the last one for the hardest, the hardest one for the last. Though I am being faithful, does making use of my Christian liberty put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother? This is hard. Because we we naturally are inclined to say, no, I've got every right to do that. I've got every right to do that. You're wrong. But does doing what you have the right to do put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of another brother or sister in Christ? Or an unbeliever? This means making sacrifice, doesn't it? Christian liberty is something I want to define before we go any further. Christian liberty is essentially anything you have the opportunity and right to do as a Christian. When, you, when Christ invades your life and by the work of the Spirit you are drawn to God through Christ, your life is completely changed. But before that, if not for Jesus, everything that everyone does is sin because you remain a faithless enemy of God. You can't even rescue orphans out of a burning house faithfully because you don't have Jesus. Anything you do without Jesus is sin because you remain an irreconciled enemy of the Lord. But because of God, because of Jesus, anything we have the privilege of doing is what we would call a Christian liberty. I can go eat at that place. The Lord has enabled me to do so faithfully in a way that pleases Him. And we must do so with an aim to honor the Lord with a thankful heart. So that's your Christian liberty. Though I am being faithful, does making use of that Christian liberty put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother? Uh, Martin Luther wrote a book called Concerning Christian Liberty. Uh, I read it this week, and it's a short book. It's not a long book, so it's not all that big of a deal. Um, And at the beginning of that book, he's, he's addressing these issues of Christian liberty. I've got the right to do this. I can do this. This for me is not a sin, so I can just do it, right? No other factors involved. And he wrote this book called Concerning Christian Liberty. And at the very beginning of the book, he makes this statement. And listen closely. He says this A Christian man is the most freed lord of all, lowercase l, lord, and subject to none. A Christian man is the most freed lord of all and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. Those sound like, well, those don't go together. He must have been confused. He wasn't confused. It's it's a bold statement about the way we're supposed to live, but many of us choose to ignore it. I know I've had seasons in my life where I just choose to, I can do what I want to do. Y'all quit judging me. I'll start despising the one who's judging me. All the while I'm being called not to despise, which usually leads to judging. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10 to look at this even more. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 through 33. It's interesting, Paul's dealing with a similar subject here in just a different place. First Corinthians 10, verses 23 through 33. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Do you spend most of your time seeking your own good? Or do you spend most of your time seeking the good of your neighbor? I'll confess publicly, I need desperate work on that. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers, one of the unbelievers invites you over for dinner, and you are disposed to go... Eat whatever is set before you, without raising any question on the ground of if if, uh, conscience. But if someone there says to you, "This has been offered in sacrifice," then do not eat it, for the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Or why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? That means my liberty is never determined by the conscience of another person. That means I have the faith that I have. I'm fully convinced as to what I believe. And just because someone else thinks that this thing is dirty, that does not define what my liberty is because their conscience is in a different place. However, you abandon that liberty for the sake of their conscience. If the scenario and the time calls for it. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of, for, of that for which I give thanks. And listen to this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. All things are lawful, but not helpful. Another way of saying that is all things are permissible, but not beneficial. Not all things are truly edifying or expedient. The question you have to ask is, do I care about the salvation of other people? Or for those who are in faith but weaken their faith, do I care about the progress of that person's faith? Because if I care about the progress of the faith of a weaker brother and I care about the salvation of one who does not know the Lord, I will always do what I can. I will always abandon my Christian liberty that I have full right to make use of if it means that I can, for even a moment, pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding for the weaker brother or for the one who is lost. Do I care about the salvation of the lost? Do I care about the faith of the weaker brother? making use of that particular Christian liberty may not be what is best for the edification of the body of believers. There's another question that comes up, and this is a question that may stir some of you. Do I have a real sense of my obligation to bear with the failings of the weak? If you turn back to Romans, go ahead and turn back to Romans 14 and look at chapter 15. If you're advanced in your faith and you're moving forward and you're growing and you know that nothing in itself is unclean, But if someone thinks it's unclean for them, it is. Then you look at chapter 15, verse 1 says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Do you have a real sense of your obligation, obligation, obligation to bear with the failings of the weak? As a believer, you have massive freedom. If you believe in Jesus and you're sitting here right now and you're saved by his blood, you are one of the freest people to walk the planet. Eternally free, not just momentarily free. Massive freedom. No drink, no food, no situation can cause you to lose your salvation. And you are free from trying to earn God's approval by keeping the law. You don't have to do that. While your forefathers had to perform ceremonial washings, you've been washed clean by the blood of Christ. Confess your sins and be healed. Repent and follow Jesus. See, the strong believer knows that everything is indeed clean in the Lord Jesus. But what this paints a picture of here is that the even stronger believer, the strong believer knows everything is indeed clean in the Lord Jesus. But the even stronger believer will abandon the right to make use of that Christian liberty if it means a chance to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Why? Well, read verses 20 through 22 in chapter 14. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. God is at work in many different ways with many different people. One who is strong in their faith will have their eyes open, paying attention to the people around them, not just themselves and what they want to do. One who is strong in their faith will have their eyes open. Why? Because it is possible to make another stumble if you disregard where they are at in their journey of faith, just so you can make use of your Christian liberty. Matthew 18, 6, Jesus is talking about his children, and he says, if you make one of these stumble... Cause them to sin, it's better for you to have a millstone put around your neck and drown in the sea. A millstone put around your neck and drown in the sea. Because it is possible to make another stumble, we must keep our eyes open and make right use of our liberty at the right time or abandon it altogether if it means pursuing peace and upbuilding. An example that Lindsay thought of Uh, was dress code in another country to look at another example because I still feel like everybody's thinking about alcohol. To give another example, Lindsay was thinking about dress code in another country and like her sister was going to Africa and particularly in the point in, in the area that she was in in Africa, it was inappropriate for a woman to show her legs. So she was going and buying things that were not made of wool that would cover her legs so that she could endure what was going on there in Africa. Now, for those who were in Africa at that point, there was an, an issue of purity as regarded to a woman's legs showing at all. There was an issue of purity that came into question. It was cultural. And it was also for those who knew the Lord because of the impact of culture, they would even say, that's, that's not pure. That's not right. So as, as a person going on that trip to that place to serve those people, sure, you could go in and say, I am an American woman, Christian American woman. And showing my legs is not dirty, you tribal fools. Come on. Open your minds. This is not dirty. It doesn't make anyone impure. Sure, you could do that. Is that beneficial for everybody in the situation? No. Go buy something that covers your legs and abandon the liberty that you have of wearing shorts for the opportunity to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding, See, verse 17 in Romans 14 says this. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God. When you hear kingdom of God, you've heard Ben say this. Think the rule of God in the hearts of men. What that means is that as the rule of God takes shape in your heart, It raises your eyes above the temporary things. I can do this. I can do that. I can drink this. I can eat that. I can wear this. I can go to that place. I can hang out with these people. I can talk like this. I can view this movie. Whatever. When the work of God in your heart takes shape and grows and continues, it raises your eyes from these temporal things to righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And not just temporary righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, eternal righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And it's not just in your life, it's in the lives of the others. Your eyes are lifted. And then in verse 22, again, it says, The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. Your liberty is not determined by someone else's conscience. So if you wish to make use of your liberty, do so in the proper setting or do so in private. The faith you have, have between yourself and the Lord. What I mean is, don't always make it a point to, oh, we can do this, but we can't have anyone else around. That's not the point. I mean, take that whole African dress code thing. When you come home from Africa, you don't have to say, sorry, y'all, my legs are dirty. I'll only be wearing pants from here on out. The people I was ministering to said they were dirty, so their conscience is going to define my liberty. I will no longer wear shorts. I'm giving them away. No, I won't give them away because I'll cause someone else to sin because everybody's legs are dirty. No one wears shorts. And even, you see what I'm saying? Your conscience, your liberty is not defined by another's conscience. When you get home, you can wear shorts. It's the appropriate setting. There, it was not the appropriate setting. Last Monday, Lindsay and I were driving home talking about Romans 14 and how to welcome. And she said, you know, in short, and she does that a lot because I'm long-winded and she likes to help me see the way to say something in a shorter manner. She said, you know, in short, as I was talking about how to welcome, you know, we've got to be patient with each other. We can't be ripping each other's heads off. We've got to really look out for other people and less for ourselves. So said, in short, the best way to welcome is just to love. It's a great point. Consider how love is defined by our Lord. Love is patient. It's kind. It's not self-seeking. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, it does rejoice in the truth while it patiently bears and endures all things, as opposed to quarreling, fighting, and leaving. Ultimately, just as Christ did not please himself, we should seek to reflect his love as we build up our neighbor for their good. So before I close, I want to state one more thing, and it's, it's difficult for me. I would like to state that there's a difference between those who are weak in faith and truly fearful that a certain thing may make them unacceptable to God, there's a difference between that person and the person who makes staunch, unbiblical requirements of Christ plus something else. Big difference. There are wicked claims if you do that. Claims such as, a true believer will love Jesus and never drink that drink. A true believer will love Jesus and never talk to that person. A true believer will love Jesus and only listen to this radio station. A true believer will love Jesus and never wear that brand of clothing. A true believer, you know, the real Christian is part of this convention. The real Christian is part of this youth group or this church. Or all the real Christian Christians will be at this disciple now this weekend. We're saying Christ plus something else. That's not right. Because what you're communicating is that you're justified not only by faith, but also by faith plus something else. What's being communicated is that you could somehow be redeemed by something else other than faith in Christ. That's where that leads. And then everybody's trying other things to be right with God. In Luther's time, I mentioned the book he read earlier that he wrote. This was the case with the Catholic Church. Luther wrote a letter to Pope Leo addressing some of the issues that were going on in the Catholic Church. And the book concerning Christian uh, liberty was a gift that he sent along with it that he actually dedicated to the Pope at the time in hopes that it would help him and encourage him in the truth. And what the Catholic Church was doing is they were saying, you know, if you're really clean, you're going to need to be a part of this ceremony, or you need this indulgence, or to make sure that you're really acceptable, you need to make sure that that guy over there says you're acceptable. They were saying Christ plus something else, and he was addressing it. And I want you to see how Luther addresses the weak, the truly weak, as opposed to who he calls the wicked ceremonialists. And I want to personalize this because when I have a strong conviction, it's really easy for me to say, hey, you guys need to be doing what I'm doing. Yeah, I love Jesus, but I also vote this way. And you guys need to, you know, if you love Jesus, you'll probably vote this way. It's easy to make the jump to do something that's wicked while you're trying to get others from not sinning. It's, it's complicated. It takes time to assess. But Luther says this, of those who urge us on their ceremonies as if they could justify us without faith, these men we resist, do just the contrary to what they do, and be bold to give them offense. Before the eyes of these men, it is expedient to eat flesh, to break fasts, and to do in behalf of the liberty of faith things which they hold to be the greatest sins. Do it right up in their face. That's what he says. But on the contrary, he says, for those who are truly weak in faith, the really the weak one, in order to avoid giving them offense, we must keep the fasts and do other things which they consider necessary. This is required of us by charity, which injures no one but serves all men. He goes on to say, fight vigorously against the wolves, but on behalf of the sheep. The conclusion is this. The only way to welcome one in Christ who has a different opinion over a disputable matter within the same faith is to do so humbly and to do so patiently. If we abandon humility and patience, we will kill each other before we have the opportunity of welcoming each other. If we come in high and mighty on our big horse, it's done. It's a bloodbath. But if we take humility and we take patience and we take this word and we stand firmly here, we will be able to welcome each other. And we've got to ask those questions. Am I despising? Am I judging? Am I fully convinced as to what I believe and why I biblically believe it? And even though I believe that, am I willing to abandon all Christian liberty for the good of another? You've got to ask these personal questions of yourself because it is before the Lord that you will have to give an account of yourself not everybody else. See, Paul includes that. That's important for you to know so that you're not judging and despising and quarreling. If you have a hard time showing patience with others, just consider the patience that the Lord has shown you. Consider the patience that the Lord has shown you if you have a hard time showing patience to another. Consider where you were a year ago. Consider what you knew was absolutely right five years ago. And maybe the Lord showed you something different. Consider how unmoving you are in a certain area. Maybe the Lord came in with the word and with the counsel of a stronger brother and said, no, it's bigger than that. Consider the patience the Lord has shown you. We can also look at the patience the Lord has shown Paul. This is what we're concluding with. If you want, you can turn with me to Acts 7, 54 through 83. These are Stephen's last words. And they connect to the letter in the church, to the church in Rome. Acts 7.54 through 8.3. You don't have to turn there, but you can. Peter is just given a remarkable speech, a remarkable recounting of the Jewish heritage to the council. And with clarity and with strength and with boldness, he's like super deacon. And he gives this account, and they're not happy about what he said. And he says this, Now when they heard these things, Verse 54 They were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And guess who? Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And listen to this. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who we know now as Paul, who wrote this letter to the church in Rome. See the connection here. See the patience that the Lord showed him. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, Do not hold this sin against them. Sounds like he's mirroring Jesus there. They know not what they do. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul, who we now know as Paul, approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul, who we now know as Paul, was ravaging the church and entering house after house. Imagine Saul busting in your front door and saying, you believe Jesus? Come with me. And dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. See, that was almost three and a half decades after the death of Christ that that happened. It was about 35 AD that that happened. Three and a half decades of patience from the Lord toward a guy named Saul. Three and a half decades of patience. Patience. Paul, then Saul, gives approval to the death of Stephen. Stephen's main point, all of your Jewish heritage is nothing if it does not lead you to Christ. It's all about Jesus now. And as Stephen cried out his last breath, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. Paul, then Saul, sits holding the garments of the witnesses who were violently murdering Stephen. As if to say, ha, he only wishes he saw Jesus right now. And Acts 8.1 says Paul, then Saul. Saul approved of his execution, and it says that he went on to use it as a catalyst to really persecute those Christians. 23 years later, Saul, now Paul, sits down with a pen and paper and writes a letter to the church in Rome, a totally different man. 23 years later. This is about 58 A.D. 23 years later in this letter, To the churches in Rome, Paul is echoing the words of Stephen. He's saying, Jews and Gentiles, it's all about Jesus now, Jew and Gentile. Embrace the gift of perfect unity in Christ and quit quarreling with each other. And 2,000 years later, we sit here and we echo the same words. Brothers and sisters, it is still all about Jesus. Not you, not me, but Jesus Embrace the gift of the perfect unity that each of us share in Christ and stop quarreling with each other over disputable matters within the same faith. Do all that you can to preserve such a sweet treasure as unity in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're humbled by your word. Let us live as a people who are free, not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Let us bear with each other's failings. Let us be fully convinced as to what we believe, always aiming to honor you while giving thanks, always living to and for Christ, but never for ourselves, Lord. Lord, if we truly love you, let us rightly love those who have been born of you. Forgive us for judging. Forgive us for despising. And forgive us for quarreling with our brothers, whom you call us to pursue peace with. Our unity is a treasure, Lord. Let us aim to put it on display, that you might be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen.